welcome to the Style Frame Saturdays podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Lee. Join me as I take a deep dive into the wonderful world of style frames and interview those who are industry wizards when it comes to this stage of the animated production process. For those who may not know, style frames are pieces of creative that are developed during the pre-production phase of an animation project, and they help creators and clients alike get an idea of the overall style of a piece. Sometimes the initial vision is carried through to the end, and other times it ends up on the cutting room floor. During this podcast, we'll discuss projects of all shapes and sizes, and the challenges, rewards, and lessons learned while developing what I like to call each guest's favorite frame. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, this podcast would not be possible without the help from Riverside and Anchor. They're the Style Frame Saturday's podcasting tools of choice, and if you're interested in learning more about their capabilities, we've got a couple of links in today's show notes for you to check out. So now that you know how we're getting this podcast to you, let's dive into today's episode. Today's guest is actually, you know what? Maybe I should let him do the talking for this one. What up, what up? Wimbush here. And today I'm excited to be on Style Frame Saturdays. Hey, Wimbush. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How have you been? Been lovely. It's been a great summer, you know, coming out of a heat wave, but still can't complain. Got some AC here and everything. So everything's good. Yep. 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 I know it's been a heat wave across this country. It's been wild. Um, I personally... Looking forward to the seasonal changes over here on the East Coast uh, and transitioning into fall. But I guess it's still a little warm for you guys out there, right, during this time of year? Yeah, like I guess the heat wave hit us um, later than everybody else. So I know this past week it's been triple digits like all week. So it's been um, as high as... 115 in some places but i'm on the coast coast like i'm like the oceans right there so it got as high as like 108 but yeah it's been pretty wow. wild. yeah oh my gosh yeah that is wild well i'm hoping that it cools off for you guys uh sooner than later as well uh because yeah i think we've all been hit with this heat wave across the country uh yeah. time for a change <laughs> <laughs> if it's okay with you, I'd love to jump in to things. Um, for anyone who doesn't know you, which, you know, I don't know if that's actually the case, but I have to say it anyway. <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know you, would you mind telling our audience a little bit about yourself, perhaps a little bit about your story and how you got into the field of motion design, animation, and video? Yeah. So for those that don't know me, my name is Jonathan Wimbush. I'm a motion graphics artist based here at the state of California. I've worked with um, studios like Marvel, DC, Warner Brothers, I first got my start actually working under Happy Madison. Um, Adam Sandler actually took me under his wing and I got to work on a lot of their properties as well as a lot of movie properties and TV shows and stuff like that. So I've been doing this professionally since about 2006 where I've been you know, stationed here in Southern California the entire time. And I started doing YouTube pre-pandemic maybe around four years now, four or five years. And I just basically started it as a way to give back to the community because I remember when I was an intern and junior artist, a lot of the mentors that I looked up to, like they helped me grow as an artist with open hands. Like there was never anybody that I could remember that said like, hey, we're going to keep these secrets to ourselves." Like everybody out here was just so helpful and helping me grow as an artist. And so I felt like since I've started my own studio here and I practically work alone for the most part. Um, This was my way of at least trying to give back a little bit to other artists out there. And hopefully people are able to learn some new skill sets off of me. For sure. No, I feel like you've, you know, you've taught 
so many people in this industry, you know, especially with regards to Unreal, how to use Unreal and really, um, you know, work that into their tool set. But, you know, speaking of Unreal, speaking of, you know, giving back to the community and everything, I'd love to chat about the frame that you're going to share with us today. You know, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the piece that you've selected? Yes. So I picked a piece that wasn't actually built in Unreal, but this is a very special style frame because this was my start into real-time rendering, which happened more than a decade ago. I want to say this was 2011. And so this particular frame is when I was working at Warner Brothers. And while I was there, I was working on a lot of television stuff, um, Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, um, a lot of CW properties like Arrow, um, The Flash, and things of that nature. But like Warner Brothers is a really large studio, so it's really sectioned out. Like I came in, I was one of the first motion graphics artists there, and I was helping build up that department there. But also, you know, across the lot, there's a theatrical um, department where they only handle theatrical IPs like Harry Potter and Batman and stuff like that. Um, You had WB Games right outside the studio, which, you know, they handled all the Lego properties. Um. Mortal Kombat, you know, the name of a few games that they handled. And then there was like a home video department. So everything was very sectionalized. And so like me being a motion graphics artist, like I was happy working on the stuff that I got to work on. But I would always say, like, especially being a gamer, I'm like, hey, how come we're not working with the WB Games team? And what can we do to try to, you know, do some of their campaign work or even work internally on the games and stuff like that? Because they were always hire outside studios you know to do the work and so um after getting a lot of um you know we'll talk to them type things just to kind of like brush you off to the side i put i took it upon myself to kind of look at the schedule of games that were being in current development and i saw lego harry potter 2 was in development and i actually grabbed assets off of their server and i started putting style frames together just based off of the stuff that i saw there like we had access to um at the time they built out like all the the lego characters in maya and so we had the maya models um we had the style guides like everything was there on the server and so i started to put together my own set of style frames that i wanted to go pitch over to wb games and so like in my free time i put together these frames i showed my boss at the time that was head of the department and he was just kind of blown away he was like you know what i'll give you the benefit of the doubt let's go show this to the people over at WB games. And um, yeah, without even the hesitation, the next day they were like, they loved your stuff. They want to talk to you further about how you might want to work with them, at least on the, um, the release campaign for the series and everything. And so that's kind of what kicked that off right there. That's awesome. Oh my gosh. So you were working at Warner brothers, Warner brothers then. And um, you know, you were working for a specific department. You weren't, mm-hmm. it sounded like, you know, every department has their own sort of creative teams if i'm you know correct me if i'm wrong that's so cool so you you like literally spearheaded this that's awesome i was known to do that a lot (laughs) because they (laughs) they had to animate like i'm a big kid right so like video games (laughs) and cartoons are my my jam so i know um you know i don't want to get too far off the track but like you know cartoon network was working closely with wb um Gotcha. They were working on Teen Titans, Teen Titans Go at the time. And, you know, I did the same exact thing. I pulled together assets, pitched it over to the animation department. And yeah, same thing there. So I had that reputation of kind of going outside the box and just kind of pushing the boundaries just because 
it, it could get monotonous when you're working on the same IPs a lot, you know? Sure. So it's like, I always wanted to try to bring new IPs into our team and just keep it exciting. For sure. No, no, that's really cool. That's awesome that you, that you did that. That's really cool. Um, well then it sounds like, you know, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but, um, I was going to ask you, you know, if you could walk us through how you approached like the creative brief, brief with Warner brothers games, but it sounds like you kind of yep. took this upon yourself, but you know, maybe you could mm -hmm. talk a little bit about, you know, what those conversations were like with Warner brother games, you know, as you approached them with this idea. Yeah. So the initial concept was there, they were going to release the game in two sets. And so they had the teaser in which I sent the storyboards over there. Um, I can't remember the villain's name at the time, but there was a teaser of just him looking in the mirror, doing goofy stuff. And then, um, that was just going to be the teaser, but you know, what I pitched on my boards was maybe we could have like some Legos collapse down on him. We could see from the viewpoint of Harry Potter, like the wand kind of going across the screen and that's going to reveal the tagline, you know, like Lego Harry Potter two years, five through seven coming soon. And so we worked on that initial concept. And, um, at the time that was all animated inside of Maya and that took forever rendering like back then we didn't have the GPU rendering sure. or stuff that we have today. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that one went out to all the gaming sites, you know, a lot of fanfare, it was a big deal. And then it was time to come to the launch trailer that was actually going to show like what the characters look like gameplay and things of that nature. And so we had all the assets to like, I was working in cinema myself at that time. And so I had everything there that I needed to execute the next marketing campaign inside of cinema. But I'm like, you know, we had a Xbox developer kit right there. I was often going into the game and playing it just to kind of get a feel for the land and the scenery and the concept and the stories and stuff. And I'm like, the stuff on the Xbox looks really good. And this stuff is happening in real time, you know, for me to recreate this entire environment and to render it out, it could take, you know, days, weeks, months, but sure. I'm actually able to play it inside this um, Xbox system and everything is happening in real time. And so that kind of got my gears turning as to how come when I'm working in my DCC stuff is taking forever, but when I'm working on the PlayStation 3 or Xbox, everything is happening in real time and there's user input at the same time. So mm -hmm. like it's, it's calculating the user input, it's calculating physics, um, the real time lighting dynamics and everything. And I'm like, this is crazy because at Xbox, you know, like um, spec wise is way lower tier than what we had in our beefy computers. And so long story short, we were able to get access codes from WB games to allow us to kind of, um, I don't want to say like hack the Xbox, but it puts you in this um, system mode called God mode, which will allow you to practically break the game open and do anything that you want. And so I started experimenting inside of God mode. I actually brought my son down to the studio on the one weekend and um, one of the producers and I told my son like, hey, you're going to play this game before it comes out. All you have to do is, you know, play the video game and I'm going to handle the other stuff on this other controller. And so what I was actually controlling was a virtual camera. And so like the producer would tell my son like, hey, do this, this and this. And while he's going through these different scenarios, I'm like on the side with another Xbox controller actually maneuvering the camera is that if I was like a VP and um, yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy because we were recording everything to tape deck back then. And at the end of the day, we showed everybody what we had came up with and they're like, 
these renders look crazy. How'd you get them done so fast? And it's like, no, this was all, you know, in, in gameplay, like we did this all in real time. And so that's what kind of kicked off like the whole real time moment for me, because ever since then, you know, working on other projects, I'm just like, man, I wish I could just do this, you know, inside of Xbox and have all my creative juices like flowing instantly and be able to see in real time what I want to output. Yeah, no. So you've been like a, you've been a real time sort of like pioneer for like quite a while now, you know? Um, so that's yeah, really cool. To. <laughs> that's really cool to hear. <laughs> Always that chasing been... that dragon, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's so cool to hear though. So yeah. I mean, like from like 2006 until now, you've just been like pushing the real time stuff and Hey, look where everything's headed. I mean, you look in Maxon's, you know, latest release and you know, that real time buttons there, you know, so, you know, people are, are ready for it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's go time for sure. Um, you've, you've spoken a little bit about the IPs around, you know, WB games and everything. Um, so just curious, you know, as you were working on this, um, knowing that Harry Potter and actually Lego are pretty well-known brands, were there any elements that, uh, you could or couldn't play with when building these spots? Um, for the most part, everything seemed to be fair game because this is stuff that, um, typically like we were thinking outside the box. And so, they were really receptive just to kind of see what we would put together sure. and um, everybody, you know, from the marketing team to the um, the heads of the studio to the development team, like everybody was loving this direction. And it kind of became a workflow for working for some or working with some of the other games in the future. Like after Lego Harry Potter, they brought me on to work on um, Lego Batman two in which okay. we did the same exact process there. Um, I worked on Batman Arkham Asylum for the Nintendo Wii, um, Mortal Kombat 9. And so it just became, you know, like the status quo from that part out because we we realized how quickly we were able to iterate and we were able to put out spots like, you know, instantly for the games and stuff like that. So very cool. Yeah, it, was, it was an interesting time. Very fun, too. I'm sure. No, definitely. It sounds like it. So then to to go off of that a little bit, could you sort of walk through what the sort of technical workflow was then like, because you weren't using Unreal exactly for this one, correct? Right. Okay. So yeah, yeah, the, the so. gaming system that you were using in tandem with Cinema or Maya, you know, uh, you were mentioning, mm -hmm. could you walk through what the what the technical workflow is actually like to kind of put this together? I know you touched upon it briefly, but we just love yeah, to yeah. hear like a breakdown of it. Yeah. Yeah, so from start to end, the very first thing would be getting into the developer kit of the game console and putting it in a god mode. And what that did for us is it would it would allow us to basically go to any game level that we wanted, um, make our characters invincible, make them as powerful as we needed them to be, basically giving you free reign over the entire game. That's why they call it a god mode. Mm -hmm. And what that allowed us to do is use a second set of uh, video game controllers to control the camera so that we were able to set up our shots. And that's how we did the storyboarding too. Like we would actually have um, one of the location scouts come down and he would virtually set up the shots and the compositing and or the composition of how he wanted the different shots. And, you know, we lay out the storyboards and come up with the flow of how we wanted like each scene to be played out and stuff like that, which was, um, you know, this was all new to me too. So it's like, we we're able to bring other people from other departments in and it just became like this big collaborative effort. And so, you know, we can't render 
technically out of a game console. And so what our solution from there was we actually um, had the HDMI go right into a tape deck. And so we actually recorded everything to, um, it, it wasn't a real, I want to say it was like a task cam or something. I forget what kind okay. of tape, but it was like an actual physical magnetic tape that um, a tape cassette that we recorded to. And then from there, you know, the editors could pull that in and they can edit and lay out everything inside of, um, I want to say it was Final Cut back then before it became right. Final Cut X. That's what all the editors were using and everything. And mm -hmm. if um, we were able to get like our string out of all the shots that we needed and that way the producer could kind of cut everything down and kind of streamline it. And then if there was any type of assets that we might need to add on top of that, I was able to bring it into cinema and add, you know, like more CG because we could do the tracking in cinema. Um, we used a lot of after effects for, you know, compositing and stuff of that nature on top of that stuff. So yeah, it was just a lot of um, R and D and figuring it out as you would go. For sure. No, it sounds like it. Oh, it's so cool though, that you were able to sort of like figure this out on the fly for this job. And I mean, did you, I'm assuming there was, um, sort of a, a deadline for this, you know, because it was going to be these promotional pieces for, for the game and everything. Um, so had, yeah. knowing that you were sort of figuring that, figuring this out as you went along, how did it feel sort of incorporating this into your workflow? Did it feel like it was speeding things up or was it about the same or because you were learning things, did it feel like it was slowing things down? Like, how did it feel kind of going through all of that with this new tool set? Yeah, I mean, for me, there was no pressure at all because I was having fun right. doing stuff, like learning new stuff and coming up with ideas on the fly. And it actually allowed us to iterate faster. So oh, cool. I think originally we were only supposed to do three spots and then we ended up doing like 10 spots because we were wow. able to work so fast and efficiently. And yeah, we did everything from the initial teaser to the the launch trailer. We did several TV spots. Um when the game came to mobile, because it came to like iPad and iPhone and Android and stuff like that, mm -hmm. we were able to use the same thing for um, making a commercial for that because they weren't even going to release a commercial for mobile. But, you know, we were able to work so quickly that we put something together for that. Um, yeah, there was a whole plethora of different opportunities there that just allowed us to work so fastly and quickly that they just kept throwing more and more stuff at us because we were able to do it and we were always ahead of schedule. Yeah, no, I'm sure. So to backtrack then a little bit and to play off of that. So I know you had said, you know, you weren't technically using Unreal for this frame and for these promotional pieces, but having had this right. experience, you know, working through this project and developing not only the style frame, but these, uh, 10 sounds like 10 pieces now at this point. Um, yeah. Now that you know Unreal, now that you've you you've mastered it and you're teaching it and stuff like that, how has Unreal helped you sort of speed up your workflow all the way starting all the way at like the creative development process? Are you are you starting to think about Unreal at that point? Um, you know, walk us through yeah. a little bit of how yeah. you approach your projects now. Now that you have a real time sort of utility like Unreal. Right. So it's been um, it's been an interesting couple of years, right, because it first started um, 2019 is when it really started working into my workflow, because that's when Epic officially announced that you could start bringing Cinema 4D projects natively into Unreal. And this was Unreal Engine 4. So this is 2019. And so that's kind of where it all kicked off for me, especially on YouTube, because there was no documentation or anything like that wasn't even official Maxon. That was Epic that took it upon themselves right. to integrate cinema. And so the Maxon team 
had no idea how to really utilize it. Um, Epic kind of just put it together. And so there was a document on it, but it wasn't fully fleshed out. And there was absolutely like no video trainers out there on how to implement the two programs together. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I took it upon myself to kind of figure things out. And as I was figuring it out, you know, I was recording it. And once I had that like Eureka moment, that's when I was like, okay, now I'm comfortable to put together a quick, um, I want to say it's like 15, 20 minute tutorial. And this was like, like midnight because I just came back from SIGGRAPH. And so I put it up on YouTube that night. And then the next day I went to SIGGRAPH and I guess like everybody saw it like on the Maxon team and the Epic team already because it started circulating around the blogs and stuff. And so that's how I... Um, I guess was starting to be known as like the motion graphics unreal person just be based off of that like tutorial alone. And so as I was working in it, more and more people that especially that had interest in real time rendering started asking me questions and I kind of just kept flowing with it. And that's where like it is. It all seems like it's almost like an accident that people start knowing me as like an unreal mentor because uh, for a long time, I was the only person out there kind of utilizing motion graphics with unreal. Mm -hmm. So the more everybody out there asked me questions, the more I would dive into it and figure stuff out and reciprocate that back and to the point to where I got really comfortable enough with it that I started using it in client work myself. And so um, like I, I do it from the beginning stages all the way to the final execution. So I definitely, I'll storyboard everything out in Unreal, which Very is cool. really cool because I could build out an entire environment and then just set up my cameras and everything where I need to be, depending on what the project is too. But um, I'm able to quickly iterate and set up cameras and instantly, you know, export out a frame that I need, put together my storyboards and everything and send that off to the client. And the cool thing I like about it too is what you see is what you get. And so right. the client doesn't see like one set of boards and then the final design might look like something else is like, no, I'm putting everything together. So what you see in my style frames is what you're going to get on the final delivery, which a lot of clients have really been liking a lot. I was just going to ask, you know, um, when you're talking to clients about, you know, what the process is, if they're unfamiliar with it, you know, how, how receptive are yep. they to knowing that, you know, what they're going to see initially is more or less what it's going to look like in the end. I'm sure that's got to be, you know, they're smiling ear to ear when they, when you tell them something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been because I get excited about stuff. So sometimes I let stuff slip. So it's been a gift and a curse because <laughs> once I tell clients like, because they'll say like, hey, how did you turn this around so fast? I'm like, oh yeah, I'm using Unreal Engine. And then they Google it and look into what Unreal is. And then it kind of hits me in the butt because clients are like, whenever they have a change on something, they're like, well, you're using Unreal, right? Like you could just, you know, knock that change out and get it right over to us as to before. You know, you would make the change, you would have to render it. And sometimes depending on what the change was, that could be a few hour process. Right. But now it's, you know, it's, it's strictly or it's greatly condensed. And so a lot of clients that know I use Unreal, it's kind of come back to bite me in the butt because <laughs> they're just like, oh, we can make this change. No problem. Jonathan's using Unreal. Right. And yeah, so. <laughs> well, this might be a silly. It's become one of those things. <laughs> this might be a silly question then. So uh, forgive me for asking it if it is. But, you know, the clients yeah, yeah. that you're working with, you know, are they largely gaming clients or are they, you know, still some broadcast clients that, you know, you've made, you know, had relationships with from back in the day? 
Yeah, that, that's been a great part. Um, a big client of mine is Five, uh, Five Stone Entertainment, in which I've worked with them through a lot of like History Channel shows, Discovery Channel, um, cool. National Geographic. And so I've been their main two guy for like the past decade and, you know, I put together all the show packages for them. And so they've been with me basically every step of the way. And so like they remember whenever I first was working with them, I was using Cinema 4D standard and physical render. And then um, I moved on to Octane. And then, you know, they were surprised like, oh, wow, this looks great. And you're rendering faster. And then I moved over to Redshift and they saw a change in that. And then, you know, I started using Unreal and they're just like each step in my career as I'm like using these different platforms, it feels like I'm just kind of outdoing myself. And they noticed that because they're just like every time I would make a change, they're like, oh, yeah, you're using something else, aren't you? And it's like, yeah, That's you know, funny. it's like just always trying to work faster and better. So, yeah, I mean, with the Unreal stuff, like um, I'm trying to think the last show that I could say I worked on. Um, Oh, yeah. For History Channel, beginning of the year, there's a show called Aztec Gold that I worked on. And um, yeah, I did the entire show myself all through Unreal Engine and everything from the CG environments to the maps, lower thirds and all that done in Unreal. And it was um, they loved it just because I was able to create um, their vision, like not photo real, but, right. you know, real stylized like i forget the term it was like photo real stylized or something like that mm -hmm. because they were always like if we want something photo real we'll just shoot it ourselves and so True. they liked having that creative liberty to make something look like the physical environment but stylize it enough to um, make it different enough from the show no definitely no and i wanted to ask that because you know i'm sure clients who are in the gaming space understand you know the technicalities of like something like unreal and these real-time engines yep. and everything so um you know i was just curious when you start to approach then some of these more broadcast or even sort of marketing advertising type clients if they're sort of aware of you know the capabilities of something like unreal engine and you know how quickly it can sort of allow you to iterate on different creative concepts and ideas um so that's actually really cool then right. to hear that you know you've been working with somebody for the longest time now who's kind of been following you the whole step of the way saying like, you know, oh, this looks really cool. Oh, this looks really cool. Oh, no, wait, now this looks really cool. <laughs> so um, that's right. awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to, you know, see how, you know, other industries learn about Unreal Engine. Um, you know, I've dabbled in it very minimally myself. Um, it is something that I definitely want to try to learn a bit more about if I can. Um, and, yeah. you know, you're the person that I, you know, learned about it from, you know, uh, your tutorials, oh, you know, seeing you online and, you know, your relationship with Maxon and other sort of outlets like School of Motion promoting it. So, um, you know, right. within the MoGraph space, I feel like, you know, when you mention the name Windbush or Unreal, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. But outside of that, you know, I do kind of wonder, do some of these other marketing agencies and advertising companies and just brands and companies in general, do they know that Unreal is out there and, and how quickly it can sort of help them get these creative ideas out? It's been getting, um, I've been getting more and more inquiries about it. Um, I've done some private talks at, um, with dinners with Epic, with studios like ESPN, um, Fox News. Yeah a lot of broadcasting networks, especially that work in real time, um, because, you know, they work, they use like VizRT systems right. to do auto real time stuff. And um, 
you know, Unreal is free compared to using a VizRT, which is very expensive. And so they're talking about making the transition. But then um, I've also been hit up by studios like Royale, um, Zoic. Um, I know Barton at ABC has been looking for more Unreal artists. And so mm-hmm. it's slowly starting to work into the workflow. Like it, it's the thing where, especially when people, you know, ask me about it, like, hey, should we switch everything to Unreal? And my answer is always no, because this is a tool that should be utilized when you think would make it convenient for your artists. I never really believe in like killing everything off and just like redoing your workflow. Like if something's working for your studio and you can add it to your pipeline at some point, then that's cool. But I don't think it's a replacement for, you know, offline renders that are out there because I always take it as it's a case by case instance. And so I, I try to tell artists it's probably vital to know as much as you can, because right. I know just me coming up, like when I was coming up, I um I first learned soft Mosh XSI, which that program oh, wow. no longer even exists. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, in you know, Autodesk Combustion and like all these programs I learned back in the day don't even exist but the concept and basics of like 3d and compositing and stuff that does exist right. and so uh, like what I've, I've always prided myself on being able to adapt and be very versatile and no matter what applications are out there because you know like unreal might be big today but who's to say they don't collapse tomorrow right and then you know you don't want to be stuck like oh man i spent all this time only knowing this one thing it's like you you really want to be adaptable and that's how you're going to have longevity in this game. No, for sure. And it's really cool you say that. And it's it's making me think too, you know, every, all these studios, even individual artists, you know, they have their own sort of processes and workflows that they follow. Um, so, you know, I'm actually right. kind of curious to to hear from you, you know, what your process was like prior to Unreal and how much it's changed since you've started to incorporate Unreal. You've obviously touched upon that, you know, it's allowed you to get um, <coughs> iterations on things out there more quickly but you know how much has it affected your pipeline thus far yeah it's gotten to the point now that i'm so comfortable in unreal that i could put together complete projects strictly on unreal like you know as an artist we become comfortable with the different programs that we know and so when i was first doing this stuff i was forcing myself to use Cinema 4D with Unreal and using After Effects with Unreal, like, because these are the programs that I know, like the back of my hand, right? right? But the more I became comfortable with Unreal, the more I could pretty much like bang everything out strictly in that program if I absolutely needed to. Now, that's not always the case. You know, sometimes there's some stuff in cinema you might need, like the MoGraph module, or I still love animating my cameras and stuff like that in cinema. And so there's still aspects of cinema that I use, but I I feel like I'm to the point to where I can practically do everything on the fly instead of Unreal. That's so cool. And so the only thing that I probably cut out, well, I don't want to say cut out because I still use it from time to time, but like I was a big Redshift person. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went from Octane over to Redshift. And if I'm doing like movie trailer work, especially where it's just like big text and stuff like that coming through, there's no reason for me to take that out of cinema into Unreal. Like gotcha. I'll still just use Rishif for that type of stuff. But if I'm building like a CG environment, you know, like I'm, I work on like shows like the deadliest catch and Alaska last frontier where I would have to build out like big mountainous scenes up there in Alaska. And 
it doesn't make sense for me to do that in Cinema 4D anymore, especially with like the foliage assets and everything in Unreal. Mm-hmm. So that those are the type of instances where it's like, okay, I'll build these big, luscious environments inside of Unreal and everything just runs at 60 frames per second. No problem. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, it's so cool. It, it Just hearing you talk about it, you know, I know now I feel like I need to like try to jump back into it, like in the next few weeks, just so I can, <laughs> <laughs> so I can use all these cool things. <laughs> but I mean, I am working on a new course that should be out within a month. And so I remember you mentioned like my that. old course was on Mograph.com, that was with Unreal 4, but I recently got um, support from Epic Games and they sent me the Epic Mega Grant in order to continue with the educational line and That's stuff. Amazing. And so a part of that was I, I had to make a course for Unreal Engine 5, but the caveat is it's going to be absolutely free this time. Like there's not going to be any charge or wow, anything no for way. that. So oh, yeah, wow. that's something that I've been working on all summer. That's why I haven't taken any client work. And so hopefully it's, hopefully it's coming out soon. I <laughs> should be wrapping that's on That's really here, huge. So. Yeah, no, well, that's, you know, we're going to have to keep an eye out for that because, you know, again, you know, all this unreal talk, it just sounds like, you know, everyone's itching to, to get their hands on it and learn it and, and have a basic, at least a basic understanding of it. Because like you said earlier, yeah, you know, yeah. It, don't, don't, get rid of your workflow, you know, what works for you works. Um, but if you can incorporate a couple of tools that's, you know, speed it up, um, you know, why not? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, going back to the, you know, WB games project, the, uh, Harry Potter Lego, uh, pieces, you know, it sounds like you really Mm -hmm. weren't given any constraints while working on this project, but I do want to ask, you know, were there any constraints while you're working on this? Um, just don't mess up because <laughs> they're taking a big chance. Because <laughs> again, everybody's comfortable in the you know the typical status quo workflow, True. and so when you're taking a chance on, especially because they were taking a chance on me to begin with, I've never worked with the WB Games department in this um, regards, and so it's you know the type of thing where we loved what you pitched with us, we loved your initiative to even approach us in the first place. Usually we hire, you know, outside agencies to work on this type of stuff and we're going to keep it internal. So, you know, please make sure you know what you're doing. And because <laughs> that's a, that's a big franchise, right? I mean, that's Harry true. Potter at the time is huge. So Well, and Lego yeah, too. They, that's um, another big IP as well. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Lego games are huge. So <laughs> so I guess the better question would have been to know you ask, you know, like, uh, not that were there any constraints, but was there pressure <laughs> to do this project? I just want to say, um, <laughs> I'm probably, I was probably naive. Like the, when I'm thinking about it now, I'm like, man, if I would have screwed that up, that would have been over with. But at the time, it's like I had so much confidence in myself and being able to problem solve and stuff. Yeah. I was just having a blast while doing it. And so there was never a time where I doubted myself as an artist of not being able to execute on the final plan. Mm-hmm. It was just all about how do we get to where we need to be in the end. And um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I became a motion graphics artist. Like I love just the R&D and the experimentation Absolutely. and just the problem solving behind it almost more than the animation part, like figuring stuff out. You kind of get like that adrenaline rush of, you know, I wasn't able to find how to do this online. My other colleagues know how to do it. I figured it out. This is crazy. And yeah, that you, there's no better feeling than that. Right? Absolutely. No, when, when you're, when you're done with the project, you know, you're sort of like, okay, oh, I can take a breath, but you've, you've learned a whole lot as you've, yeah. as you've, as you've worked on it. And you're sort of like, that was really fun. You're sort of like, okay, when can I jump into the next right. one? You know, I think that's why 
I don't want to speak for everybody in the industry, but you know, a lot of people, you know, will work on personal pieces as soon as like, you know, maybe yeah. when a client gig uh, wraps up or when they have some downtime and, um, you know, you talk about balancing those things a little bit, but when you have such passion for what you do, you know, that balance meter, I think, you know, it tends to be a little bit different. Um, so, you know, yeah, right. it's, it's, it's cool to hear that, you know, you were sort of like, you know, I was, I was so stoked to work on this and, you know, and we made it, made it, we made it happen. And then on top of it, WB was sort of like, oh yeah, this is, this is great. Like, you know, job well done. Right. And we got, and we got this many more pieces out of it too. So a happy right. client is always good. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, like just out throughout my career, the biggest piece of advice I can say to any artist is don't cripple yourself with the fear of missing up because I know a lot of people, um, especially in the art industry, there's a lot of like artist burnout. Yeah. And I feel like that's because they don't take the time to um, kind of think outside the box. Whenever stuff gets monotonous and you're only trying to figure it out in this particular order because that's what you're used to, that's where the burnout happens. But if you take the time to sometime just think outside the box, experiment, try new things, and just get creative with it, that's how I feel like you kind of prevent like the artist burnout. And plus, you know, you feel good about yourself because you're you're coming up with new techniques that you can then use on other projects as well. That's so true. No, no, I couldn't agree with you more there. Um, absolutely. Um, well, to go off of that too, then, you know, what would you say then was the biggest challenge about this project that you worked on? Um, for the Harry Potter one or for yes. the Unreal? No, sorry for the, for the Harry Potter one. Um, that one, maybe just trying to teach other artists, you know, at the time, because everybody was stuck in their, their, I guess their workflow and no one really was understanding what I was trying to do at the end of the day. And so for me, it's just like, I'm a free flowing, free form artist but trying to, like we had a team, you know, we had a department. So trying to get them to understand the vision of how we needed to execute it, I would say just those creative barriers was more of um, the nuance than anything else. But yeah, I mean, that that just comes from education and helping your fellow peers out and try to get them over that threshold to where they're comfortable trying out new stuff as well. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, what then would you say was the biggest reward about working on this project too? Getting to work on Lego Harry Potter or Lego Batman too. Because <laughs> oh, that right, one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, did the same thing. They, um, that was another huge project because, um, the Lego games before that, none of the characters ever talked before. There's no VO artists or anything. Mm-hmm. They just made like grunt noises and stuff like that. But for Lego Batman 2, this was the first time there was, there was actually a voiceover cast inside one of these Lego games. And so it was a big deal at the time. And they entrusted me to um, work on that campaign and in some of the end game graphics as well. And so that was a big one. Plus, um, I got to bring my son back down to help me down on that one. I think he was maybe 10 at the time. And so it was just one of those, you know, great moments where you get to be the cool dad. He's down there at the studio. You know, he's bragging to his friends. Oh. And then on top of that, um, we won like a BAFTA award for that campaign and um, a Telly award. And, you know, we both have the same name, Jonathan Wimbush. And so when the awards came, 
he actually took them because he's like, this is mine. <laughs> I worked on this. And so like I had pictures of him holding their words up and stuff like that. So that was, oh my God. that was a cool moment in my life. So I'm sure. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That's too funny. Oh, he sounds really sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I know you yeah. had said, you know, um, you know, of the frames that you were able to select from, you know, like this was uh, the favorite that you wanted to talk about today, but what about this frame makes it your favorite frame? Yeah, just the lineage behind it and how it kind of spearheaded to me to where I am today. Like back then, I wasn't even thinking about game engines. It was more about the fact that you're able to render stuff in real time. And um, that's just something that even after I left Warner Brothers and I was back to, you know, using GPU rendering, that's something mm -hmm. that stuck into my back of my head. Like I'm here like I'm stacking my computer with like four GPUs. I had like a mini render farm here and I was still never able to get to that satisfactory point to where I'm able to render stuff instantly. Like I'm still doing overnight renders and stuff like that. So that is what kind of made me go off the cuff a little bit and start experimenting with game engines. Like I started off with Unity for about a year trying to figure out how to utilize Unity um, there was a game engine that Amazon had called Lumberjack. Like I got a hold of Lumberjack and was trying to figure that out. And it kind of just put me into that mindset. Like something has to give, like I have to be able to figure out how I could get back to real time technologies. And so, yeah, that frame is kind of what just kicked it off and always had that thought in my mind. Like there, there, there gotta be something I could figure out for the industry. Like it doesn't have to be like this, you know? Yeah, no, that's amazing. I love the story. I think it's so cool, you know, to kind of hear how everything started and where it's at and where it's going. I mean, we're all going to be, you know, looking to you to, you know, get the real time stuff under our belts um, because it just feels like it is like the, the wave of the future. But, um, yeah. you know, this has just been wonderful, Winbush. You know, thank you so much for sharing this frame and this project with us today. If people uh, want to connect with you and learn more about what you're working on, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, yeah, I would say my YouTube channel, first and foremost, that's where I seem to have the biggest community. So that's youtube.com slash Jonathan Wimbush. Um, other social media platforms, like um, same thing, Jonathan Wimbush on Instagram and Twitter. And um, yeah, usually like YouTube is probably the biggest one where I like if someone leaves a comment, I absolutely make it a, a point to answer somebody at some point that day. So if anybody has any questions, usually YouTube is the best place to get in touch with me there. Awesome. Good to know. Well, you know, we'll share links to some of the tools and resources we mentioned here for our audience to check out. We'll also share these links as well so that if anyone has any unreal questions or just simply wants to talk shop or just connect with you, you know, we'll make sure to drop those down for our audience as well. But that wraps it up for today, everyone. Feel free to email us at styleframesatpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, if you like what you see and hear here, don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platforms as well. And lastly, come connect with us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you again, Winbush, for joining us today. Oh, and you. we'll see you in the next one. All right. Take care.